It is great to be here. I am a, a dad of three girls, and you'll probably hear some stories about those three girls. I um, always um, prepare my girls when I'm going to talk about parenting, that I'm going to tell stories about them, and I ask them if that's okay. And sometimes they say it is, and sometimes they say it, they say it isn't, and I still tell stories about them. Um, <clears throat> they've heard them all before. And uh, we do have two grandkids. One is uh, uh, about two and a half, and a uh, little boy. So the boys versus girls now, we have a son-in-law and a grandson. So it's starting to tilt back um, towards the boys. And we have a um, little granddaughter who was born about eight months ago. So um, life is a blessing, and we're on the other end in some sense of the parenting experience. And all those verses that talk about um, your kids rising up and blessing you, um, it's just an unspeakable joy. And um, so I, I want to tell you that what we're going to talk about this weekend um, is really, really important. There's a lot of responsibility. It's a lot of fun. And uh, I'm going to hope to keep telling you to have fun in this process. But when you get to the other end of it, it's a tremendous blessing as you see your kids um, actually mature and, and, and grow up and strike out on their own. And, you know, back in the day, I used to play football, and then I coached football, and coaching football was always interesting because we'd take a bunch of kids who had never played football, we'd put them in pads and work them out all summer, and then on that first Friday night, we'd have to stop at that chalk line, and they'd run out under those uh, lights and either make an absolute fool of the coaches or make us look good. And that's a lot like parenting. And um, so what we want to talk about um, this weekend is what, what to do, um, what we want to do to prepare for that day when they go running out past that chalk line and you have to stop. And it comes really fast. I appreciate you going through the demographics of who's here. For those of you that don't have kids yet, I think this is going to be really relevant to you. And I hope it's going to help you instill vision into either that that marriage that's about to happen or the new marriage that you're in now of what do we want our family to look like? How are we going to do this? Um, And those of you with really young children, you hear this from old people all the time, so I'm going to prove I'm old. Um, Day before yesterday, we had two-year-olds and four-year-olds and six-year-olds running around the house. It goes really fast. Um, and it goes fast because it's such a blessing and it's so much fun and there's so much to do and it really goes fast. So um, what I want to do here um, this weekend is kind of lay a foundation for, for biblical parenting um, and biblical marriage, really, because those two really go together. This class is in many ways as much about you and your marriage as it is about you and your parenting because you're going to hear me say a lot that Mom and dad need to be on the same page, and mom and dad need to be living what they're teaching. Because if you're not living what you're teaching, um, your kids might catch what you say, but they're going to catch what you do um, a whole lot quicker. And they'll take that a lot more seriously. Um, I will tell you um, that I'm up here not because I'm an expert on parenting. I'm not a parenting guru. I'm not a parenting expert. Um, We'll give you the email for our three daughters. If you want proof of that, you can write them emails and they'll confirm we're not parenting experts. Um, But what what we want to do in this class is give you a biblical framework to evaluate your parenting and evaluate um, with with a biblical frame um, your plans for parenting and where you're going with this thing. And I also want to encourage you um, with some scripture. So tonight, just to lay it out, we're going to talk about what is successful parenting. 
I think a lot of times we labor under a false um, understanding of what is successful parenting. Um, And we want to look at how the Bible defines that. Tomorrow morning, we're going to have two sessions. We're going to talk about boys in one session, and we're going to talk about girls in another session. And if you, like me, have three daughters, I think you still want to hear about boys. Because you want to raise those three daughters to marry men. And you need to know, um, um, I think, from Scripture what a godly man looks like so that you can help train your daughters what a godly man looks like. And dad, so you can be a godly man to model that for your daughters so that as they um, grow up and decide they want to get married, they know what a godly man looks like. And the same thing, if you have all boys, I think it's probably imperative also that you, you hear about not just how to raise girls, but what a godly woman looks like. And then on Sunday morning, we're going to talk about discipline. And we've done this a few times, and it's pretty typical that when we go through this first session like we're going to tonight, and we're going to talk about raising boys and raising girls, and some of you are going to say, yeah, that's all good, but none of this is working. I really, we, we need to discipline our kids. And so Sunday morning, we're going to talk about biblical discipline and what the Bible has to say about discipline, and I think it's going to encourage um, your soul. So let's start off tonight with successful parenting. And um, I want to give you some perspective on parenting books, just to start off. Um, parenting books and seminars, a lot of times, when they talk about parenting, deal with methodology. How do you do it? And there's parenting classes that can go on for 10, 15, 20, 25 weeks. Maybe you've seen that. Maybe you've gotten the, the podcast series or the tape series of parenting classes that go on and on and on. And the reason is they're teaching you methodology. And the fact is that the, the basis for all of that would be a solid theology, and the Bible really doesn't have that much to say about parenting. That may surprise you. you you'd think you're going to be out by 7.30 now. Um, not quite. The Bible has some specific guidance on parenting, and that's what I'm going to call theology. Okay? But not a lot. And it's, this seems to indicate that there's basic truths that we need to understand as parents Um, and that we need to abide by. But beyond that, there's a lot of freedom in your parenting. And we want to define what does the Bible say versus what doesn't it say and let that define um, and give you room for your preferences and your personality, which there's a lot of room for in, in your family. You get to raise your family how you want to raise your family. Your family gets to look like how you want that family to look like. Understanding, though, what God says about uh, parenting. And when learning how to parent, we have to be careful to understand the distinction between preference and biblical principle. If it's a preference issue, basically you can say if the shoe fits, wear it. You can do it. You cannot do it. Okay? And we're going to try to stay away from preference this weekend. I'm not going to teach you my preferences. I don't think you should care about my preferences. What we're here to learn is biblical principle, and the biblical response to biblical principle is submit and obey. Okay, so it's very important that we draw that distinction both for this weekend, but also as you're reading parenting books or you're hearing people talk about parenting, you need to identify, are they talking about theology or are they talking about a philosophy of parenting or are they talking about methodology, how actually to parent? And we want to turn all of that over and really start with the theology primarily and the, philo- and the philosophy secondarily. And maybe we'll get into some of the methodology for, um, Sunday night in the Q&A. 
If you want to know how does this look, how do you do this or that, we can talk about that Sunday night. But the goal is to lay a foundation for you to develop your own godly methodology. What's it going to look like in your house? Built on a solid theology. Okay, let me explain one more way, make another run at that. Philosophies can vary, and I'll give you an example. We've seen over the years um, with peers, and as we've gotten older with younger families, early to bed, early to rise, you remember, makes a man healthy, wealthy, and wise. And there's families that live by that. The kids are in bed by 7.30 every night. And there's other families where you wonder, do they ever turn the lights out? Um, that family goes 90 miles an hour. Maybe I'm describing your family. And, and the families that have their kids in bed by 7.30 every night tend to look at the families who never turn the lights out and say they're doing it wrong. Well, that's not a theology or a doctrinal issue. That's a preference issue on its surface. You can't really say that you have to do it one way or another way. In other words, that's not a biblical issue. And methodologies can vary. Families can do it different. And all you have to do is get to know other families in your church and you'll know every family does this different. The other distinction to keep in mind is that not every child is the same either. We learned that. We had three daughters and I'm convinced they all came from different planets. They could not be more different. Maybe you've experienced that. You wonder how can children from the same mom and dad be so entirely, completely wired differently. And that... Um, speaks to a cautionary note that as you determine how you're going to parent that you have to be careful. One size does not fit all either from family to family to family nor does it necessarily fit from child to child to child. Okay? So, having said all of that, the theology can't vary. What we want to focus on is the truth of Scripture that it doesn't matter your child's personality, doesn't matter your child's um, sensitivity to, um, to Scripture. It doesn't matter how anybody else does it. What matters is what does the Bible say because that's what we need to do and we want to um, obey. So there's a couple goals here starting tonight. One is we want mom and dad to be of the same mind. The, the goal here tonight is, and throughout the weekend is to get mom and dad on the same page, to get you to the place where you agree Um, You go back to what you know, the theology, and based on the truth of Scripture, you share a common goal for your children. You develop common goals, not based on how you were raised or even how other people do it, but based on the truth of Scripture. And you base those goals on scriptural truth. And then the other goal is I want to challenge you to live the life that illustrates what you're attempting to teach your children. Um, Teachers who can't, um, model it are going to have a much more difficult time seeing some of this actually happen in your home. And the last goal of mine is, I, I'm going to keep telling you this, please enjoy this season of life. Children are a gift from the Lord. And they're not just a gift to grandma and grandpa. They're primarily a gift to mom and dad. And um, I would hope that you enjoy this. Okay? So, Uh, One other point to talk about in terms of unifying the goals. If you want to resolve conflict and differences within your marriage when it comes to parenting, and this typically shows up in the teen years, and that's why I asked Rick to find out how many of you have teens in the house. That's where it really gets critical. If mom and dad are not on the same page, 
um, it can get very, very difficult. So what we want to do is take you back to your theology, get you on the same page, and I think that gives tremendous clarity um, to what you're trying to accomplish with your um, children, whether they're teenagers or they're three years old. Okay? So that's what we're going to do. And the following, just to start off, is a review of what's assumed to be already known and understood. I'm going to go pretty quick. You're a well-taught church, and I do recognize that some of what I say, you might say, whoa, 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 that went by really fast. Um, And if it goes by too fast, talk to me afterwards. I'd be happy to drill down on any of these areas, but I want to really give a, a, um, a broad overview of these topics in the short time that we have together. Okay? So, you're going to see the profound impact that reviewing basic doctrine has on your parenting in the next few minutes. And I want to start off with the concept of our relationship to God. The most basic and foundational relationship on earth that you will ever deal with is your relationship with God. And if we step back together and look at that relationship, and you will be tempted to say, what does this have to do with parenting? I promise you we're going to get there. And I think it's pretty profound. It's good and profitable to remember who we are in relationship to who God is. So who is God? Who is he? Well, I'm not going to make you talk tonight, but I'll just, this is a Sunday school question. Who is God? Some of the Sunday school answers. He's our creator, isn't he? Um, He's our redeemer. He's our example. He's our judge. And you can go on and on and on. It's a fun conversation to talk about who is God. But like I say, we're going to move through this pretty quick. Who is man? Well, man is dependent on God for our very existence. Very simple truth. Genesis 2-7. God created us. And the creator controls the created. So at its most basic level, who is man? We are completely dependent on God for our very existence. We're also, the Bible says, subject to God's wrath as part of his creation. Romans 1.18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So we're subject to God's wrath. Why? Because the Bible also says that we're lost in our sin. Ephesians 2.1 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Those of, you, those of us who are saved don't say that. In the present tense anymore, we get to say we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But every human being has to deal with the fact that God is who he is and man is dependent on God for our very existence. We're we're subject to God's wrath. We're lost in sin and that we're dependent on God, not just for our life, but for our very salvation. And I'm assuming you believe that. You know that. I know that you're well taught. You understand Ephesians 2.5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. That verse is so clear. Our very salvation is dependent on God. Um, And then finally, we're subject to God's sovereignty. And it goes on in Ephesians 2. "By, By grace, you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. And scripture talks a lot about how God ordains um, everything that happens on this earth, we are subject to God's order, to God's sovereignty. Okay? So we're subject to, we're dependent on God's mercy and grace. So that's who God is. 
That's who man is. And at its most basic level, and if you're taking notes, occasionally I'm going to tell you, write this down. Okay, points, anchor points um, to write down. And this is, I'm about to tell you something that you need to write down if you're taking notes. At its most basic level, man's relationship to God is based on fear. At its most basic level, I just ran through who God is, who man is, and when you boil all that down, if you're to, if you're to summarize, what is um, man's relationship to God based on, it is fear. And that may surprise you, but this, has, this is true, and this has profound impact on your parenting. What is the fear of God? Again, I'm not going to make you talk tonight. Um, I'll, I'll ask the questions and answer them tonight. What is the fear of God? It's obviously dread. Um, it's terror. It's awe, right? But it also means in Scripture honor and respect, love, knowledge of God. All of those terms are wrapped up in the concept in Scripture of the fear of God. And Scripture makes clear that the fear of God leads to certain actions. Submission and obedience. So, a Christian fears God. And when a Christian fears God, if you know Christ is your Savior, you're no longer living in dread, awe, and terror. You're living in, in love, honor, and respect of your Savior. Someone who's not a, not a Christian also fears God, and their fear is defined as dread, awe, and terror. So the definition of the fear of God depends on where you stand in your relationship to God. So, Christians fear God, non-Christians fear God. It is a fact of life that every human being lives in the fear of God. The difference is that some who are not saved do not know to fear God. But that is only a timing difference, as we accountants like to call it. At some point, they will be in a position of dread and terror before a holy God. So at its most basic level, man's relationship to God is based on fear. Okay, so as we further establish a theological basis for our parenting, which is what we're doing now, believe it or not, some of you I know are already saying, what in the world does this have to do with parenting? Hang in there. This all comes together. So as we establish the parenting, we we move from the most basic basis for who we are and who God is, which is fear, to the implications of that truth. And here's the next thing you need to write down, and here's an outline for the next few minutes. There's a solid link in Scripture between the fear of God, the most basic basis of the relationship between man and God is fear. And there is a link in Scripture between the fear of God Wisdom, obedience, repentance, and salvation. And this is the core of what we're going to talk about tonight. As we talk about successful parenting, I need you to see tonight the link, the connection, the flow in Scripture between that fear of God, which every man must deal with at some point, and wise living, obedience, repentance, and salvation. Parenting is the process of training in those first four. The fear of God, wisdom, obedience, and repentance. And praying for that fifth one, salvation. That's something, if you're going to write 
uh, make notes. Write down those five elements, the fear of God, wisdom, obedience, repentance, salvation. Next to those first four, that's your job, is to teach and train in those first four. And that last one, your job is to pray for it as it relates to your child. So let's start with the fear of God. And we're going to roll through wisdom, obedience, repentance, and salvation. And we are going to move quickly. And I think if you understand the next 20 minutes or so, if you can come away understanding um, the connection between these concepts from Scripture, your parenting will be dramatically impacted. It dramatically impacted Anne and I and, and how we raised our three daughters. So let's talk about the fear of God. And if you have your Bible, I'm now going to start making you jump around and turn to some passages. If you could turn to Psalm 111.10. Psalm 111.10. And this is a verse that crystallizes and consolidates... Those first three elements of the fear of God, wisdom, and obedience. And I think once you see the verse, you're going to say, I've heard this verse before. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. There's the first two. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. In that verse are three elements. It's the connection between the fear of God Wisdom and obedience. And let me read the verse to you again, kind of simplifying the terms. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, a good understanding. That's another way of saying wisdom. Wisdom have all those who do his commandments. That's what? That's obedience. Proverbs 1.7, Proverbs 9.10, both repeat the concept. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You've heard that. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. You don't have to turn there. We will be back in Deuteronomy 6 a couple times this weekend. I just want to read this to you. I know you've heard this before. Now, this is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God commanded me to teach you so that you, your son, and your grandson. Are we talking about parenting here? It's right out of Deuteronomy. So that you, your son, and your grandson might fear the Lord your God. And what, is, what do you think it says next? And to keep all his statutes and commandments. The fear of the Lord leads to what? Obedience. The fear of God results in obedience. It's really interesting. Um, you can write this down. Exodus twenty twenty. Right after the Ten Commandments have been given to Moses. An, an enormous event. God has made himself evident. Moses comes down from the mountain and he says to the people, God has come in order to test you and in order that the fear of him, the fear of God, may remain with you so that you may not sin. What's another way of saying may not sin? Obey. The purpose of the fear of God was so that they would obey. Do you see the link in Scripture? Do you understand what I'm saying when I say there is a link in Scripture between the fear of God, wisdom, and obedience? Now let me draw some links here real quick because I don't want you sitting there going, when is this guy going to get to parenting? I think it might be obvious we're there. Do you want an obedient child? I hope you want an obedient child. What have we seen already? What do you really need to teach to get your child to be an obedient child? The fear of the Lord. Because the fear of the Lord leads to wisdom. And the fear of the Lord motivates obedience. Do you want a wise child? 
You do. If you want a wise child, based on what scripture has to say, you want to train them in the fear of God. So what is the fear of God? How do you teach the fear of God? It's who God is. It's what God has done. It's what he will do. It's what God expects. It's the love of God. We'll see that in Deuteronomy 6 a little bit later. But the That's the fear of God, and that leads to wisdom, and that leads to obedience. Pretty profound, pretty basic. And I'm really happy um, and thrilled to tell you it's really that simple. It's not complicated. But that link in Scripture between the fear of God and wisdom and obedience has profound impact on our parenting. Now, if you would, let's go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy 6. I told you I'd have you turn there later. Let's just do that now. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Probably should have had you turn to it a minute ago. This is a passage that I think you should go back and read. Maybe mom and dad read it together. Really um, meditate on this passage because so much is here. Starting in verse 1. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you. We're now going to talk about the Obedience. And I think it's really important here that God has commanded us to teach what we're about to read. Mom and dad, this isn't optional. And I know that's hard, and that might be hard truth, but in Scripture it gets really clear sometimes. This is the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess it. Verse 2, so that you, your son, and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I commanded you all the days of your life, and that your days may be prolonged. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. We've seen the fear of God out of this passage, we've seen wisdom and obedience, and now we're going to talk about obedience. There's a couple of indications here and descriptions of what that obedience should look like. In verse 2, we'll just pick these out. Well, first of all, in verse 1, it says that you might do them. The translation of that is obey. In verse 2, it says um, keep all his statutes and commandments. The translation of that is obey. Verse 3, you should listen and be careful to do it. Translation, obey. And all of that comes out of the fear of the Lord, love for the Lord. See, the fear of the Lord leads to the love for the Lord, which leads to obedience. All right, so we've talked about the first four, and I know we're going fast. Fear of God, wisdom, obedience, and if Um, you have any experience at all as a parent, you know that they're not always going to obey, right? And now we're going to slow down because I want to spend a few minutes and talk about the fourth element of repentance. And this is extremely important in the context of parenting. Your children will not always obey. And one of the concepts, the truths in Scripture, is what um, true repentance looks like. And there's a couple of places where true repentance is described. Psalm 51. You can go read that um, later. I highly encourage it. Um, David's been confronted by Nathan for murder. 
adultery, all of the things that happened between David and Bathsheba, and he repents. And if you want to see what repentance looks like, read through Psalm 51. Another place where the Bible talks about what true repentance looks like is in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 7 to 12. You can go back and read that later. If we had time, I mean, we could spend a whole session on repentance. But here's how it describes it in 2 Corinthians 7. Repentance looks like indignation, sorrow without regret, fear, longing, zeal in avenging the wrong, vindication, innocence, which doesn't mean originally innocent. What it means is after the fact, after repentance, there is innocence. In other words, they've changed their behavior. That's what biblical repentance looks like. But I think what I want to do is, if you would, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15, and I want to spend a few minutes looking at a very graphic story that illustrates what repentance does not look like. Um, This is a true story, obviously. It's in Scripture. And this has to do with Samuel. The two main players here are Samuel and Saul. And Saul disobeys. And and let me set the stage here, verse 3. Um, Samuel comes to Saul on God's authority and tells him what God wants him to do. Verse 3, now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him. What should happen to Amalek? Okay. Should die. Do not spare him. Put him to death, both man and woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. Should anything survive? Pretty clear, isn't it? Joey, go take out the trash. Any ambiguity in that? Probably not. So, the rest of the story will go down to verse 8. You can go back and fill in the details, but in verse 8 it says that Saul captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly, utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. Has he obeyed? He has not. Verse 9 makes that clear. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless, they utterly destroyed. Okay? That's not obedience. And there's a lot we can pull out of 1 Samuel 15. If you want to study what obedience and disobedience looks like, it's all here. But we're going to focus on what does repentance look like. Samuel comes to rebuke Saul. He approaches him four times. And Saul makes a run at repentance four times. And I'm going to, spoiler alert, none of them are right. Okay? Verse 10. The word of the Lord came to Samuel saying, I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned his back from following me and has not carried out my commandments. And Samuel was distressed and cried out to the Lord all night. Samuel rises up. He goes to Saul and talks to Saul in verse 15. Here's what Saul says. They, right there is a problem, huh? What's he doing? Somebody else did it. Is that repentance? No, that's an easy one. Okay. They have brought them from the Amalekites for the people and spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we have utterly destroyed. Joey, go take out the trash. Ten minutes later, Joey, did you take out the trash? No, Mommy, but I went in my room and I drew this picture for you. 
And there's a picture for you, of you, with the word scrawled, I love mommy. Is that repentance? That's not repentance. Saul's kind of a grown-up version of that. Look, we kept the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but the rest we've utterly destroyed. That's not repentance, and it's not obedience. And then Samuel says, wait, let me tell you what the Lord has said, and it's not good. And down in verse 20, Saul responds. Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission on which the Lord sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, the sheep, the oxen, the choices of things, devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. Is that repentance? That's still not repentance. Samuel comes back at him one more time. And by the way, this is such a picture of grace. Samuel keeps coming back, giving him one more chance, one more chance, one more chance. And what Samuel's telling him, what we're skipping over here is really compelling stuff, very convicting stuff. Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. There's repentance, isn't it? No, I told you, spoiler alert, none of this was good enough. That's not repentance. That's confession. That's not repentance. And how many of us, Ann and I, would be the first ones to raise our hands that when we hear, heard our children say things like, I sinned, I transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and I listened to their voice, Verse 25, now therefore, please pardon my sin. I'm sorry, please forgive me and return with me that I may worship the Lord. That modern translation is mom, dad, I sinned, I did wrong. I did exactly what you just said I did. Please forgive me now. Can we go to church so we can worship together? Some of you are parents of teens. If your teenager ever said that to you, you'd probably need someone to call 911. You'd be so happy, right? And we're so tempted to call that repentance, And that's not repentance, because look what happens. Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you've rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord rejected you from being the king over Israel. What is missing there? Why is Samuel being so hard on Saul? And the answer is because Saul didn't do the one thing he needed to do which I mentioned from 2 Corinthians 7, it's in Psalm 51, the indignation, the fear, the longing, the zeal in avenging the wrong. Saul could confess his sin, but he wouldn't go reverse the impact of his sin. He wouldn't go do what he was originally told to do. Joey wouldn't go out and take the, go take the trash out. That's repentance. And the evidence of that is, um, as the story goes on, um, Saul loses his kingdom. Verse 32, Samuel said, bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully, and Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal. That's a heavy-duty verse. Samuel had to go do what Saul was commanded to do. Saul said, I'm sorry, I've sinned. I... Um, Now let's go to church, but don't make me go do what God told me to do. The implication in parenting is, is probably obvious. True repentance is a recognition of sin. It's your child recognizing their sin, acknowledging their fault, and making it right. It's reversing the impact of the sin to the extent 
um, um, possible and it's changed behavior. And if you want a Bible verse to memorize with your kids to kind of cement this concept, it's Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his transgression will not prosper, but he who confesses them will find compassion. Is that what that says? I played a trick on you. I read it in the way most of us live our life and most of us parent our children. If they confess, they'll find compassion. That's not biblical repentance. We're to um, teach our children that they confess and forsake. That's what Proverbs 28, 13 says. He who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. The Lord requires repentance. Repentance is not sorrow alone. It's not emotion alone. I skipped over part of 1 Samuel 15 where he grabs onto the robe of Samuel and begs him and it evokes emotion that Saul probably was crying and how many of us, when we hear um, them, our children say, I've sinned, I've indeed transgressed your commands and the commands of the Lord, and here's why I did it, and they're crying, and you just really want everything to be okay. And you should want it to be okay. But you need to take them to that extra, play, that extra step and understand that's not necessarily repentance. Sorrow, emotion, feelings, apologies, words, that's not repentance. Repentance is action. These are all possible elements of repentance, but they don't prove it. In fact, those responses can hide the true heart condition. To the extent someone has those responses trained into them, if you accept those responses as, as repentance and the end of the discipline process, then you are training, um, you're training into them potentially the opportunity to have a heart that's as cold as stone. And the, the true heart um, is, is masked. So some of the errors made in parenting in this area is teaching the cultural definition of repentance. Some of you, I think, are probably a little uncomfortable right now. And that's okay. Um, I want you to think through this because what the Bible teaches as true repentance is so different from what the culture would say. Maybe even what you were taught. Teaching, um, sometimes it's easy to teach a lazy repentance. Because it's a lot less work, isn't it? Some of you have been involved in those intense situations with your children. and You just want it over with. And you see the first glimpse of even a soft heart. And you want it to be done. And my challenge to you is that the scripture holds us to a standard of teaching our children biblical repentance. Other errors made in our parenting is that we don't teach repentance at all. That we don't take our children through that process of understanding what repentance looks like. And, and sometimes not teaching that confession, confession is not repentance. It's an element of repentance. And here's why this is so important. The fear of God, wisdom, obedience, repentance, and that fifth one is salvation and I said, you work on the first four and you pray for the fifth. And the reason I say that is biblical repentance is the pathway to your child's salvation. Because what I just described of your repentance or of, of true repentance should be a description of your own repentance in your own gospel story of how you came to Christ. 
An adult who does not know how to repent must overcome that handicap when they hear the gospel. It's hard truth unless they've been trained that in your trained to understand that in your home. Alternatively, a um, an adult who knows true repentance can more easily respond to the gospel message. And our job as parents is to teach and train the fear of God, wisdom, obedience, and repentance. And in the last few minutes now, let me just bring this all down to your parenting. The proper understanding of God, man, salvation, obedience, repentance leads to a couple conclusions. And I really want to challenge your thinking um, uh, on your parenting, that the basis of your parenting is and should be your theology. A proper view of God, a proper view of man, and a proper response to who God is, which is fear, wise living, obedience, and then repentance when you don't obey. And from this platform of theology will, fall, will flow your philosophy of parenting as a couple, as a family, and then your methodology, how you're actually going to make this all happen. And it's all guided by very profound questions of your proper view of man and your proper view of God. And now let me walk through um, a couple of things here. We're going to look at the, a proper view of man and let you think about how that in, impacts your parenting. And then an improper view of man. Wrong theology and how wrong theology can be evidenced in your parenting. Let's look at a proper view of man. Your child entered this world depraved. Remember we went through that pretty fast? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. For you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I know it's hard. It's hard truth sometimes. But your child arrived in this, on this earth about as messed up as they could ever be. Sinners. You can't mess them up any worse than how they arrived. And I would encourage you to write that down and to think about that. That has profound impact on your parenting. And it should help you sleep a whole lot better tonight. But let's look at it from the other side, an improper view of man, wrong theology. If If you believe that your child does not enter the world depraved, unable to respond to Christ, as it says in Ephesians 2.1, then you parent from the standpoint of you actually believe you can mess them up if you don't do this parenting thing correctly. Do you see the difference? That is a profound impact of your theology on your parenting. If you believe what the Bible says about how you entered the world applies to your child, then you know rest well tonight. You can't do anything that are going to put your kids in a worse position than how they arrived in your home. And some of us, um, we have the right theology, but we parent and we labor sometimes for getting our right theology, and we actually think if we don't parent correctly, we're going to send them to hell, or we're going to mess them up. That's wrong. Another... Um, um, implication of, of a wrong theology is that I need to protect, protect my child from exposure to any e- evil in the world. I'm going to protect them and shield them from any music, movies, friends, some even, um, even in our church, withhold pe- their children from the fellowship of the church because their children might fellowship with <gasps> sinners. 
And that comes out of a wrong theology. That comes out of a perspective that I'm going to mess my child up. If I let them be exposed to anything, they're going to get messed up. And one of the harsh realities is when parents that do that realize when their children get older that they, did, they could have perfectly shielded them from all the outside world. And guess what? There's sin in the house. Because it's residence um, in that, that um, son or daughter. And I'm not advocating, by the way, throw kids into the world. Let's be clear. But what I am saying is the parenting out of fear if you're parenting out of fear, review your theology. Another wrong conclusion is that I'm responsible for my child's sin. And I think probably most of you would agree, of course I'm not. But how, how many of us parents and labor under the grief of our children's sin and they don't even care? They're not concerned about their sin. Their sin is their sin. We're not responsible for our children's sin. And another implication of wrong theology is, and here we get down to successful parenting, my success as a parent is dependent on whether my child professes faith in Christ. That is a false standard. And if you're going to write anything down, write this down, because it might shock you and I really want you to think about it. Salvation is not a realistic goal of your parenting. Salvation is not a realistic goal of your parenting. And let me define goal before you throw me out of here or throw things at me. I'm defining goal as anything that's achievable by your efforts. And we have already reviewed this. You can't make your child repent. You can't make your child saved. Salvation is the hope and prayer of parenting, but it's not a realistic goal of parenting. And that's why I said teach the first four. The fear of God, the wisdom of God, obedience and repentance, and you pray, oh, you pray hard for that fifth one, salvation. And by teaching the fear of God, the wisdom of God, obedience, are you tired of hearing all of these? I want them burned in your brain, and I hope they're burned in your brain. But if you teach the fear of God, the wisdom of God, obedience and repentance, you have paved the way. You have done what God's called you to do from Scripture. And the evaluation of your success as a parenting then is not whether they become a Christian, give their life to Christ. Evaluating the success of your parenting on the salvation of your children is to base that evaluation on something that God controls, not you. Many parents labor under terrible guilt and a sense of failure because their kids aren't saved. I will tell you, I come from a good-sized church Rick will probably back me up on this. Some of the finest parenting I have ever seen are the parents of children who do not know Christ, and yet they faithfully continue to teach and model and live the fear of God, the wisdom of God, obedience and repentance, and they pray like crazy for the salvation of their children. Many parents on the other side gloat and take pride in the fact, hey, I have 13 kids and they're all saved. I must be a good parent. I don't have 13 kids, as you know. They take, they take credit for the salvation of their children, and that's dangerous. That's taking, they had nothing to do with it, and then I guess I could call that foolish pride because taking credit for the salvation of our children is to steal the glory of who? 
glory of God. We can't do that. The Lord saves our children or he doesn't save our children or he saves them in his time, in his way. It's, that's up to the Lord. If you believe God sovereignly calls who he will call, then you must take the obvious application to your own parenting. You and I are not God. And if this is hard for you, think about this. Did your parents have anything to do with your salvation? At the end of the day, they didn't. You may be very grateful to your parents for having taught you who God is, what he's done, so that when you heard the gospel message, it made sense to you. I'm grateful to my father. My father made it so easy to understand what my heavenly father was like because my earthly father was so much like him in my eyes. That's good parenting. That's faithful parenting. But my dad didn't save me. God saved me. The evaluation of your parenting is whether you've trained your child in the way God's instructed you to train them. That is successful parenting. The results are up to your children and it's between your children and God. Okay? So, one more step. A proper view of God. And this is really, really important. Proper view of God. We looked at a proper view of man and that, the implication of that on your parenting. An improper view of man and the implication on your parenting. One last thing. An understanding of the holiness of God and the impact that has on your parenting. And this is really practical. I think it's really helpful but one of the things we said about God is that God is holy. And that has incredible impact on your parenting. And let me draw that out for you. Starting back in Leviticus, running all the way through the New Testament, including Matthew 5.48, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is what? Perfect. Holy. You are to be holy. I am to be holy. Your child is to be what? Holy as their heavenly Father is holy. It's a pretty high standard. We read in Deuteronomy twice that we were to keep, not just keep his statutes, but keep what? All his statutes. All the days of your life. That's the standard. There's a behavioral standard and it's perfection. It's holiness. So by golly, your kids better be perfect, right? Are your kids ever going to be perfect? No. No. This standard of perfection, though, is neither negotiable or unclear. It's, it is really clear throughout Scripture that this is the standard. And our children must be expected to obey, to approach this standard. And I think, though, that our children must ultimately come to the conclusion and must be led there by you and I as parents, taught to, to understand their inability to achieve that perfection, because what does that lead them to? Their understanding of their need for a what? A savior. Teaching the fear of God, the wisdom of God, obedience, perfect obedience. The standard of God is a pathway that leads your children to an understanding that they need a savior. And that, in fact, is, you may not have articulated it that way, but this pathway that all of us who are saved here tonight went down. We came to a place where we understood we needed a savior. So in Ephesians 6, 4, where it says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Have you ever heard that verse? Of course you have. That whole parenting conference could be built around that verse. 
And it kind of is. Because this verse comes after three verses of talking to children about obeying their parents. And what's interesting about this verse is um, that you're to bring your children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's the fear of God, wisdom, obedience, repentance. There it is. Bring them up in that. But it says, fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. And I think it's important to define that that does not come, the anger of your children, you do not exasperate your children by setting too high a standard. Because scripture has said, Matthew 5, 48, Leviticus eleven forty four, all kinds of places, be holy as what? As your father is holy. Exasperation and anger comes from shifting and changing standards. From Make, from replacing God's standard of behavior with your standard of behavior to match your preferences, your politics, your personality, whatever it is. We're to teach the standard that comes from God to avoid that exasperation. Exasperation and anger comes from mixed standards. What dad says versus what, how dad lives. What mom says versus how mom lives. That feeds exasperation. Exasperation and anger comes from no standards. Not teaching the fear of God, the expectations of God. Exasperation and anger comes from confusion about standards. Dad's standards are different from mom's standards. Or mom and dad's standards are different because they live at different standards, but they both tell me to live at this standard. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, the fear of God, the wisdom of God, obedience, and repentance. So, successful parenting. One more time, just review. We're gonna, you teach the fear of God. You teach biblical, wise living. You teach obedience and you teach biblical repentance. And I hope you understand now that we're not talking about successfully raising Christian children. We're talking about successful parenting of children because that fifth one, you model the fear of God, wisdom, obedience, repentance, and you pray like crazy for the salvation of your kids. And you rest in the truth that that's for God. That you do what you're called to do, you obey what you're commanded to do, and that's, that's what I would call successful parenting. And let your theology, what you know, the basic truths that you know influence how you parent. Let that drive and unify mom and dad as a clarifying factor in your home on how you're going to care for your children and the methodology of how you're going to raise your children. Your success in parenting, in other words, is not in what what your children do. It's in what you do and whether you obey um, the commands in Scripture on what you are to teach. Okay, so that's successful parenting. Tomorrow, what we're going to do First session, boys. Second session, girls. I can't wait. We're going to look in Scripture what is the unique role God's given to boys, men. And based on that goal, what are um, the uh, goals that you set in your home and then the disciplines you teach to help your little boys grow up, not into sons, but into men. And then we'll take that same approach with the girls. Um, it, we're going to move fast. It's going to be fascinating and ultimately, men, I'm going to be um, all over you about modeling this. And ladies, I'm going to be all over you about modeling it for your sons and for your daughters because they want to be godly. You want them to be godly men, godly women, and you want them to marry. 
godly men, godly women. Okay? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I thank you for the clarity of your word. Lord, I pray that, Holy Spirit, you would take what was said tonight and apply it to each of our hearts. Give it great clarity. Lord, teach our hearts. Guide us. Lord, I pray that tonight we would contemplate these things. Lord, I pray that the rest of the time we have this weekend would be um, challenging and yet encouraging and helpful. Lord, we want to honor you in our parenting. We want the world to look at our families and say, there is a picture of the gospel. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.